Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much. We're delighted to be here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol, as you know, is a nationally known gerontologist, serves as chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and is executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and she feeds cats. Oh, wow. You didn't have to throw in that last one. No, you take care of kitties. Yes. We we are one of those, you know, spay and release kinds of families. TNR, trap, neuter, release. Right. We we catch the neighborhood cats and make sure that we're only feeding them and not their offspring. That's a good thing. So. As we take a look, and Bob Blancata is going to join us in just a couple of moments. You know him from the National Council on Aging. He's on the board there. Uh, We're in the heat of the political season, and we're going to talk uh, with him and with you about issues and politics. We don't get involved in the nitty-gritty of the politics, but for seniors and caregivers and family members, uh, it's always an important election. Well, that's it. And maybe as caregivers, we're not, you know, we're so busy caregiving, we're not paying attention to the politics that are going on. But when it comes to the general election, we there are issues that really do impact each of us every day. And Bob's going to be talking about those. And one of the issues, although it's not in the middle of this campaign, is the question of regulating, not regulating supplements, because there are a lot of questions about How effective are they? How important are they? Are you taking them? And you have a list of five myths about nutritional supplements. I do. And, you know, one in three Americans take a nutritional supplement. We spend about $11 billion advertising. We all know where the aisle is in our grocery store that has all this, you know, nutritional supplements. I bet everyone listening could picture it in their mind. You know, and the problem is, is that too many of us are guessing about what we need or we're listening to family and friends, we really have no idea None. what supplements we should be taking. So um, so some of the myths. Uh, one of the myths, supplements can help prevent or manage conditions like diabetes or heart disease. Eh. No, supplements aren't intended to address any specific disease. Surprise. But the ads get the close ads to that line. make it sound like it. No. You know, what they're intended to do is to balance out and round out your diet. Those supplements are supposed to supplement the... That's the word. Yes. When you, whatever you eat and whatever vitamins and minerals you're missing out of your diet, they're supposed to fill in those gaps. You know, vitamin D is a good example because since none of us go outside anymore, we're too busy watching TV and on our computers, um, we don't get any vitamin D. And it can be difficult, you know, for older people to absorb the vitamin D. And supplements are a good example of one that you would want to take so you can absorb your calcium. And, of course, when we do go out, we slather ourselves with sunscreen, which keeps the vitamin D away. I know. I actually... Um, I don't know. I, I don't believe my my old middle son is listening. Um, That's the doctor's but, son. <laughs> no, no, it's not the doctor's oh. son. It's the, yeah, younger than him. Um, he's one of those sunscreen people. Oh. Uh, and, you know, he... He's kind of scary pale, and that's one of the things that his physician actually has mentioned to him about sometimes you have to go outside (laughs) without the sunscreen on every part of your body because the sun can be good for you. A little bit of sun is good for you. There's a reason that Earth is a a planet with life on it. It's called the sun. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) We kind of need that. Um, So another myth is supplements can make up for your diet's flaws so you don't need a well-rounded diet. Ah. Uh, Wrong. You still need the well 
well-rounded diet. Again, we're just filling in the gaps. Um, the problem with supplements is that it's so easy to get too much of them. You know, if you have a well-rounded diet and you're taking supplements, then you can, too much of a good thing is not a good thing anymore uh, and can actually cause problems. Like too much vitamin A can increase your risk of osteoporosis. Too much vitamin E can increase your risk of a stroke. You don't hear those on no, any of the advertisements for supplements. And these supplements, the, these um, vitamins and minerals are stored in your fat and they're not excreted. They're not going anywhere. And so they can stay store up and they become toxic. So, you know, when you're picking things out, you know, you don't want to pick out anything that's more than 300% of, of any of your daily uh, allowance of anything because otherwise you could possibly be getting too much. So let's see. Um, uh, number three is the best supplements are labeled all natural. That's a myth because the only thing that matters is the nutritional facts uh, on the actual label. All natural, primrose, rose hips, whatever all those extra things are. You mean just, nothing. You're, it means you're paying more. Right. But it doesn't mean that you're getting any more for your money. So, again, we, we talked about, you know, 100% to 300%. That's what you want to see on the label, no more than that. Because I've seen some that say 1,200% of this right. particular supplement. What if you're already getting eating yogurt and drinking milk and you're just getting 1,200% of something I see that on else. some of the fish oils. Yeah, you do see that. Yeah. Although that's a harder one. So if you hear, that, uh, you hear a new study, whatever the study is, you go out and you buy the supplement. Uh, that would be I'm not guilty. a good idea. I'm guilty of that. Yeah, I was thinking that I actually was a little guilty <laughs> yeah. of that, too. Because it might not be right or safe for you. Let, for example, let's say you take a blood thinner. Um, and so if you're on a blood thinner and you take both vitamin E and omega-3, it makes your blood even thinner and harder to clot. Not so good. all you're doing is aggravating something you're already on medication for. So if you're on Coumadin or one of the others. And, one, and vitamin E and omega-3, you need to, so you need to talk to your doctor about balancing that out. Now you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Podcasts of all these shows, by the way, are available. Just go to caregiversos.org. We're talking uh, with our co-host Carol Zerniel about the five myths about nutritional supplements, and we're up to number four. Uh, actually, we're up to number five. Number five. Yeah, okay. oh, it's cool. so fast. Time flies. So um, multiple, so getting single-source supplements, a bottle of vitamin A, a bottle of vitamin B, a bottle of vitamin C, that's better than a multivitamin. Oh, Well, really? no, that's a myth. Oh. That's a myth. Oh. For healthy adults, a multivitamin is probably sufficient. The exceptions to that are if you need more um, B12, because we know a low vitamin B can actually make people th- act like they have dementia if you don't have enough B vitamins. So B12, calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, and omega-3. Those are things you might want standalone. Mm -hmm. I know I take vitamin D by itself. I take calcium by itself because my doctor has prescribed that. Right. Um, But, you know, really the multivitamins are, are, if you eat a good diet, even a a multiple vitamin diet isn't even necessary if you've got the plate with all those colors and fruits and vegetables and you're doing all those wonderful things, which most of us don't. So having heard all this, the myths, what do you get the biggest bang for your buck? What are the five things that uh, you need to know the best five to take. So the be- this is this came from um, an article in grandparents.com where they were just you know, they were reiterating. So of the vitamins, which should you take um, on the to take list? You know, multivitamin for seniors is probably good because we're not eating that well-rounded meal usually, uh, especially if I'm doing the cooking. Uh, <laughs> vitamin B12 because of the dementia. 
calcium because so many older people are at risk of osteoporosis, the vitamin D, so you can absorb that calcium that you just took. Right. You know, those go hand in hand. Um, and then, I don't know if you say A-reds or Air-reds for, um, for macular, for your eye health. So it's A-R-E-D-S, age-related eye disease hmm. um, studies. And if you look in your, um, in your grocery shelf, you will see vitamins that it's a combination of C and E and other things I can't pronounce and helps prevent macular degeneration. Which we all want to do. Which we all want to do. And I know that in my family, that kind of runs in our family. Ooh. So that's something that we would want to have as a supplement in, you know, on the shelf. We're going to be talking with Bob Blancato in just a couple of moments, who is uh, on the board of the National Council on Aging, along a distinguished career working on senior and aging issues. All right, Carol Zerniel, you tell me. Who's at greatest risk for Alzheimer's? Well, this, you know, came across my desk actually today, um, and it's a study that was released by the Alzheimer's Association, and it talks about inequalities in people getting dementia. So it looked at different ethnic groups and who's at highest risk. So looking at a large study of people over a period of years, they found that um, African Americans are at greatest risk as well as Alaskan, Indian, and Native Americans. No they are at highest risk as, an, as a group for oh. Alzheimer's. So at medium risk, are Latinos and whites, um, and at lowest risk are Asian Americans, uh, have the lowest risk of really? Alzheimer's. So that may be kind of a surprise for some people listening. I have a friend whose sister is an Inuit uh, Alaskan Eskimo, so she'd be at higher risk. She would be at higher risk. Wow. Um, and it doesn't talk about why. It's just it says that diabetes rates varied by sixty percent between groups. So between the um, African American groups and the Asian groups, there's like a sixty percent difference in the rate of dementia. Huh. So kind of interesting to know. If Anything in there about stadium announcers like Roland? Are they at greater risk? <laughs> you know, risk? By, by job, it doesn't actually specify dementia by occupation. That's so, a good thing. So, Roland, I, I can't tell you anything except you're at medium risk just because you're white like me. Now, a <laughs> lot more coverage on Alzheimer's, but are more or fewer people developing the condition? Well, this was another interesting study. So I don't know. Some of you may have heard of the Framingham Heart Study. And, uh, it's been going on forever. It's been going on for decades, decades, right. decades. And what they found is that since every, you know, in the, since the 70s, so 70s, 80s, 90s, and after 2000, that the rate of Alzheimer's has been decreasing every five years. And in terms of it was uh, when they first started, it was actually – 3.6 people per 100 got dementia, and in the latest study, it's 2.0 per 100 get dementia. So it's going down, which is fascinating, but they don't know why. Oh. That's the end. Nice I'm, I'm reading this study, and I get to the conclusion, and it says, we don't know, have any idea why that is. Why is it going down? The one variable that stands out is people with a over a high school education. Oh. So the one thing that is consistent is that people who have a college education have less dementia. I would correlate it with the consumption of broccoli. Do you think it's the broccoli? I think it's the Do broccoli. Do they teach that in college? You can't not learn yet. that in high school? No, not yet. It's a college course called Broccoli 101. Bob Blancato is coming up in just a couple of moments. She's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The answer. 
Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and caregivers. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people who care for them. Programs like Caregiver Teleconnection, Caregiver Teleconnection is a free, bilingual, and confidential program connecting caregivers and family members to information and support through the telephone. Each Caregiver Teleconnection telelearning session is hosted by professional facilitators and experts, giving caregivers the opportunity to connect with and share with others in a similar situation. With Caregiver Teleconnection, learning and support is just a phone call away. Find out more at 866-390-6491. Or go to caregivertelleconnection.org. Well, we're sure pleased you're sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we are pleased to be joined by Bob Blancato, who is president of Matt's Blancato and Associates in Washington, D.C., which will mean nothing to most of us and everyone listening. The important point is that he is the national coordinator of the bipartisan 3,000-member Elder Justice Coalition, serves as an executive director of the National Association of Nutrition and Aging Services, and on the board at the National Council on Aging, where Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is board chair. And, Bob, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Ron and Carol. Nice to be back on the show. Well, and I, I have to give a shout-out to Bob because he's the incoming chair of the American Society on Aging. Yes, well, then you and I could be board chairs together. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yes, that, there's a punchline in there, there somewhere, is. and I can't yeah, think of right. it. And when I hear something like that, I'm always tempted to ask, did you miss the meeting where, you, where they picked you, or did you want to do that? <laughs> the, the truth of it is, um, I did miss the meeting, um, <laughs> but it turned out that the person who was supposed to become chair decided that uh, he didn't want to, and so they just moved me up uh, two years ahead of time. Oh, well, that's cool. All right, so Bob and I are, are going to join forces in two right. different national aging organizations. Take over the world. To, well, you know, to actually push these issues that we're about to talk about. That's right. So for the seniors and caregivers and family members who are listening, obviously we're, we're in the heart of the election season, getting close to selecting nominees in both the Republican and Democratic parties and for House and Senate. What are some of the issues that uh, seniors, caregivers, and family members should be concerned about and the kinds of questions that we should be asking? Well, first of all, you know, you're right. I mean, we're, at, we're in the heart of the, of, the, uh, of the season, you know, having just uh, gone through uh, Super Tuesday. But I, I find it very interesting as you look at the election uh, and the primary so far, you know, in New Hampshire, um, the oldest candidates um, in each party uh, were selected, um, meaning Senator Sanders and, uh, and Donald Trump. And then you have some very interesting generational um, uh, issues or subplots, I guess, in this, um, in this campaign so far. You have the oldest candidate, Bernie Sanders, getting a lot of his support from the youngest voters. The youngest candidate, Senator Rubio, was being accused of being a rigid and robotic. And then you have surrogates for the major female candidate, Secretary Hillary Clinton, who, who triggered generational strife about women and voting. And you know what? It's only March, so we have a long way to go. But that being said, the thing to remember about older voters is that, first of all, their numbers are going to rise dramatically between 2012 and 2016. They will go from 16% of the voting population to 23%. And that's a big jump. And, you know, 
to win older voters, candidates have to recognize that these men and women are experienced in the polling booth. Some have voted in 10 or more presidential elections. And so one of the first things they're going to notice is who is pandering to them and who actually has plans that are important to them. And I also believe strongly that older voters have a strong intergenerational streak. You know, we are now in the world of three and four and even five generation families, and these voters are going to be motivated by issues that relate to economic security throughout the lifespan. But more specifically, obviously the future of Social Security is of critical importance to uh, voters because Social Security is our largest children's program as well as it is a large program benefiting older adults. Well, I want to stop uh, you right there just for a second. Um, please. Because, number one, a lot of people don't think of Social Security as one of the largest payers for children, and that's with the survivor benefit um, that they pay out. But, you know, I've, I have, I admit, I have not listen to all of the debates, but uh, a fair number of them. And it doesn't sound like that conversation is going on in most realms in terms of oh, the issue of Social Security has, I don't know, it's I think I've heard up. it maybe in two debates, and that's it. Well, you know, I think it is um, farther along than it was before. You know, as, as you know, I'm also involved with ARP as a volunteer state president in my home state of Virginia. And we are, have a campaign called Take a Stand where you know we're pushing uh, candidates to get on the record with social security and their and their positions and i think to date every candidate but um, perhaps donald trump although he may have stepped in by this point have offered some views on social security and i know that a couple of cases it's about either expanding your benefits or going back to some discussions about how we can strengthen the system through different ways of investing well trump um, yesterday in a speech in virginia uh, we're taping the show before it airs, obviously, yesterday commented that uh, he will not touch Social Security, but he will reduce, and it's the old fraud and waste, which we've heard for the last 9 million years. That's how he'll bring costs under control. But he will not lower Social Security benefits. Well, then, he, uh, then he's taking a stand. Now, Correct. again, the question isn't whether we agree with the stand or not. It's, it's first of all, is getting them to take a stand. And it's up to the voters to figure out you know, what the stand is and whether it's the way that we should be going in the future. Correct. You know, same thing with Medicare. I mean, you have, you have proposals all over the lot from Medicare for All um, that Senator Sanders has talked about that's a broader uh, commitment to health insurance, to coverage, than even the Affordable Care Act, uh, expanding Medicare benefits, fo- greater focus on prevention, and then you have other discussions about, you know, uh, premium choice, uh, having, you know, a voucher system replace Medicare. And again, you know, these are, th- these are issues that need to be brought up, but so too should we focus on the growth and number of people ap- impacted by Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, somebody needs to have a broad-based approach to dealing with Alzheimer's beyond just the research issue, which is important, but we need to focus on the caregiving side of, of Alzheimer's. Now stay with and me just in- a minute. For those who've just joined us, we're talking with Bob Blancato, who is with us on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. Uh, We found him in the Washington, D.C. area, serves on the board of the National Council on Aging and a number of other distinguished positions. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And and Bob, for those who've just joined us, we're trying to recap some of the issues that uh, are are on the burner between now and the general election in November. And we were were talking about the, the importance of the family caregiver in the discussions about issues that that older people care about that's also an intergenerational issue. 
Um, you know, if we, I believe that the candidate that can tap into that that tremendous poten- political potential that family caregivers have will benefit very well in the election because the numbers are phenomenal in family caregiving, and you know um, how we approach dealing with the uh, financial cost of caregiving is very important. Um, we need to focus on long-term care, uh, which does also include the importance of caregiving. We don't have a national long-term care policy in this country, even though we should. Um, we need to be focusing on issues around elder abuse and elder justice. If one out of every ten people over the age of 60 is a victim of elder abuse, then we ought to be hearing more about how the federal government can do more to you know, crack down on that problem and, and help prevent it and also serve its, serve its victims. And we also should be talking about good programs that currently exist, like the Older Americans Act and all the services it provides. It's languishing in Washington right now. Congressman cannot cannot seem to get it renewed. And it's it's, been, it, it's been ten years, has it not? That it hasn't been re- renewed. Well, it's about it's a little over six, but it's too long. Too I mean, long. whether it's you know five years or ten is too long. This is a program that automatically would be renewed by Congress, whether it's Republican Congress or Democratic Congress, uh, because this is one of those programs that pays itself over and over again by how much it saves the Medicare Medicaid system by allowing older people to remain at home or in the community and getting services, yet, you know, somebody needs to raise that issue going forward as well. And, you know, there's, there's a whole range of, of, you know, of issues, uh, economic security issues, workforce issues, you know, the older worker is, a, is an untapped resource that we need to do more to focus on. Um, so I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, as we whittle down the number of candidates who are running, and I suspect that that process will really take place in the month of March. Um, then you can shift from, you know, competing against other people for a nomination to focusing on the issues that are going to get you elected in the general election. Well, I think and that... W- I, I hope that happens soon. Yeah, I think that was my question, is do you believe once we have the candidates, the top candidates in each of the parties, that we will return to talking about issues and get a chance to delve into these issues? I believe we will, but it's, going to, it's a two-way street. They have to do it, but so do the advocates have to keep pushing the issues in with those opportunities when they can interact with the candidates. Well, you know, uh, do you think that if Hillary Clinton gets the nomination, that because she's a woman, that, that maybe more women will bring up the caregiving problems, the long-term care issues that they're having? I would believe that to be the case, uh, and also economic security issues, because, you know, older women... Um, suffer, you know, a great deal more on the economic insecurity side than, than older men do. Because their older men die. Well, that's true. They do outlive us. Um, <laughs> exactly. And I, I, would, I would love to do some research as to why, but, you know, there's not enough time on this call to go into that conversation. But let's just say that I would think that she would be a, uh, a, an important champion on this issue. Um, she also comes to the table as a grandmother this time that she wasn't in, in 2008. And, you know, grandparents raising grandchildren is a, is a very important issue in our country that we're not giving enough attention to. So, yes, I believe that, you know, her, her uh, being the standard bearer for the Democrats will allow these issues to get more attention. But it's going to be about, you know, smaller things, too. You know, we've got to educate moderators who do these debates to start raising questions that, you know, impact a wider sector of people. It isn't about the gotcha questions anymore. Let's get down to some basics that, uh, you know, that force a candidate to address an issue that will motivate somebody to vote for or against them. So, Bob, for those who say, and you hear it every election year, 
You know, it doesn't really matter whether you elect a Republican or a Democrat. They're all the same on these issues. Oh, I, I would disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll join have, you in that disagreement. <laughs> I mean, we have plenty of examples of, um, you know, of different approaches on issues. Let's take Social Security as an example. You know, a, a, a president once removed, uh, so to speak, uh, meaning President Bush, um, you know, proposed a, a plan to do a partial form of privatization um, of some of the Social Security trust funds to help technically uh, make them grow at a higher rate than they were um, using just investing in government bonds. Well, you know, the, the consequences, had you put some of the Social Security trust funds in the stock market in that time period, um, would have been devastating for people's, uh, you know, for, uh, well-being, if you will. And the people um, rejected it. Thank it go- was rejected. Thank yeah. goodness. Yeah, looking back, it's real. It's it, it's very scary thinking that people who would have, you know, Social Security maybe the only retirement they have, um, and that half of it probably would have been lost. Right. Yeah, and you know, but on the same token, you know, and and this you hear this this raised a number of times too. You've got Senator Sanders, uh, who you know is a progressive by nature, offering a variety of plans that you know um, haven't necessarily been um, vetted for their cost. And, you know, they may be very expensive, and that's another side of the coin as well. So, Got to stop you right there. We are flat out of time. Wait, we, we, CNN we, gets a lot more time than we do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can we do this, get you back on as uh, the election season unfolds, and we'll continue this discussion a couple months from now? It would be my pleasure. Thanks. Really, really appreciate you coming on, Bob. Thank you. All right, Ron, Carol, take care. Thank take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bob Blancana on the board of the National Council on Aging and a whole lot more. And uh, what a great guest, Carol. Thank you. Well, you know, That was your suggestion. He has got his finger on the pulse of everything going on with the election uh, related to seniors and caregivers, really. So uh, I do want to keep up with this topic because it's important. We're going to continue a discussion here, Ron and Carol, coming your way on Caregiver SOS On Air. Well, we really appreciate Bob Blancato coming on and got us thinking about a couple of things which we will share with you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And one of the things that Bob touched on, Carol, is the whole question of, uh, and people don't really understand the role of Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and how it's funded and how important it is to a whole lot of folks in our society. Well, that's right. And and the issue that Medicare pays for so many, I'm sorry, Social Security is an intergenerational issue. Um, people think, you know, think about it, oh, entitlements. You know, this is money that people have paid in from working during their working lives. Uh, maybe the first people when Social Security was enacted in 1935, uh, those people may have pulled out more money than they put in, but most of us now have contributed to Social Security our whole lives. Um, And I know if something happened to me or to my husband, my son under 18 would get, you know, a survivor benefit. And people don't understand how many children actually in families are getting survivor benefits from Social Security. They want to say, oh, that's about the old people. And it's not. It's really about family security. And the other category under Social Security is Social Security disability. Well, that's it. It's a lot of criticism, but the fact is for a lot of people, it's their lifeline. That's right. Um, And someone who has a disability that can no longer work. Uh, you know, you've got to rely on, you know, something when you can't work or can't find work uh, with the abilities that you do have. So, you know, those are real lifelines. And, you know, the question of whether the candidates 
have different views. Uh, yes, you know, I think we'd have to underscore that uh, very definitely in terms of, of thinking about the best way, and, I, and I'm not sure, I know, I haven't heard it yet, um, the best way to deal with this growing aging population. I don't, I haven't heard anybody talking about that. I haven't, I haven't heard anybody, you know, maybe in passing mention something about families and, and taking care of loved ones. But we certainly would love to bubble that up. And when he said, we have to educate the moderators. So all of us that are listening, we need to get out our emails. And it may actually be easier to email a potential moderator from one of the networks that you know will host the debates once mm-hmm. we have the final candidates, um, like Fox, like CNN, like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. the MSNBC. Or NBC or um, National Public Television. Right. Um, so those typically have some of the debates. And ask the moderators, hey, ask these questions. Um, and I know the question that I would like to hear is talking about this lack of a long-term care system. That's kind of going to – that's my soapbox because – you know, when you look at it, and many people don't understand that Medicare doesn't pay for long-term care. Doesn't pay for nursing home. Doesn't pay for nursing home. It pays for a nursing home if you've been in the hospital, and it pays for maybe 120 days. That's it. And 120 days is not 10 years, is not five years, is not one year. Uh, and so the only thing you can do for long-term care is private pay or spend down to Medicaid. And so when you think about people who have saved their entire lives to take care of themselves. And I recently, you know, here in Texas, did a study on what it was costing for assisted living and nursing homes. Um, Assisted living for somebody with Alzheimer's runs around $6,500 a month for a memory care unit. Um, Social Security average. And that's not the absolute top of the line. Oh, that's not in the top of the line. Um, And so you figure somebody who's on Social Security retirement and the average Social Security retirement for two people is around $1,800 a month. Assisted living is $6,500 a month. Uh, A nursing home for somebody with Alzheimer's, with an Alzheimer's unit here in Texas, was $62,000 a year. Um, And it can go, again, that can go higher. It can be as high as $94,000 a year um, in some states for a nursing home. I know uh, in Wisconsin, the nursing home there is raising their rates to $7,300 a month in a very small town. Um, where my uncle lives. So these are big numbers. I don't know many of us that keep an extra $7,000 a month in our pocket to pay for, you know, long-term care. We haven't set aside that kind of money, and it doesn't take long to go through your savings. The only ones who have that kind of money were at the Academy Awards the other night when uh, <laughs> Chris Rock asked oh, them to Girl buy Scout, Girl, Girl Scout, Scout cookies. cookies and raised $65,000. They ponied up $65,000. I know. I was like, man, I should have thought of that when I was a Girl Scout. I, I said to my wife, do they carry that kind of money in their pocket? She said, oh, yeah. That audience, they, yeah, just they carry the, rolls probably, of hundreds. No, they're probably the little goodie bags they get at the Oscars when <laughs> right. they check in are worth, you know, maybe yeah. 12000 a piece, and they just put it past the plate, and they'll drop their goodie bags in there, and they can just sell the tchotchkes in there. Now, I asked you, this is many months ago now, I said, you know, I'm amazed as you go around town to see the incredible uh, building underway for assisted living facilities uh, and you had mentioned that uh, there's a quirk in the regulations that uh, it's a lot easier to build one of those and operate it because there's less government interference. Right. The you know the interesting thing is that assisted living really was created as an 
alternative to nursing homes, which we needed. So I'm thinking of a family that we visited with recently that, you know, really could, couldn't afford assisted living at 7000 you know, $6,500 a month. Um, and so if you can't afford that uh, and you doesn't take long to spend down to Medicaid, you go into a nursing home. Well, the populations are very different. In assisted living, it is just that, assisted living. It's more independent. It's an apartment. It's your meals are provided. And then you pay for every extra service. care that you yeah, Actually, every service. Every service <laughs> that you need. So if you need help dressing, if you need help with your laundry, if you need help with medications, you know, when to take your meds, if you need help transferring, if you need help toileting, those kinds of things. But people in a nursing home need a nurse, a skilled nurse that level of care. So most of those people are predominantly in wheelchairs. Um, it's not the same activity calendar in a nursing home that you would find in assisted living. Uh, it, very different populations. And when somebody really doesn't need nursing care, but they can't afford assisted living, so they have to go into Medicaid nursing home, that can be their only option if they're on a wait list for community services where you get Medicaid in the community and get to stay in your home. Most people don't get to do that. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they said even people with men families with someone with mental retardation, they wait sometimes four to five years wow. to get community-based services for their loved one. And for those those older folks that are trying to get on community-based um, Medicaid, sometimes, you know, they die before they get on the services. Not a lot of people know what community-based Medicaid well, that would Medicaid be, there, there are, you know, there's a push right now, and we need to encourage that push for people to have a choice. Do I want to get my Medicaid services, my, my nurse, my, you know, medication assistance, my bathing, my dressing, all that assistance, do I want that in my home, or do I want that in a facility like a nursing home? Most people would want it at home. Or, or in an assisted living, because actually some programs are even paying for assisted living. So most people, that's still considered community. Most people don't want to be in the nursing home. I mean, that's the big fear is, right. oh, don't put me in the nursing home. So so those choices are there. But, it, you know, financially, if those mechanisms, if those wait lists are too high, if you don't have enough money, your choice is eliminated to nursing home. That's it. And that may not be the best place. And it doesn't I, – I, sometimes I go into nursing homes and I see young people who – have nothing in common right. with the, or with almost roommate. nothing in common with the people around them, um, and it's you know it, it can, I'm sure it's very disheartening, uh, and and that's where the real push in the in the disabilities community came to help get people out of nursing mm -hmm. homes was this kind of a, a, a mismatch. Uh, in terms of the population. So the long-term care issue is huge. I think the caregiving issue, um, I was reading a fascinating paper uh, over the weekend that was talking about um, dementia care and dementia as a disability. So we, I was just talking about mental retardation. Uh, families with kids with mental retardation, there are programs to keep those families and the loved one operating at their highest level, right? We want a program that's going to reach them where their strengths are and play to that strength and that they are entitled. They get some services. What if we said Alzheimer's was a disability? Which it is. Which it is because you have literally have Swiss cheese brain. I mean, there are, your brain is shrinking. It has holes in it. It is a physiological. Thanks for that dis visual Yeah, image. I know. Disability. Yeah. It's horrible. So what if we said people with Alzheimer's, that is a disability, and they also qualify for services? Because what happens is 
you know, they were talking about we have somebody who has Alzheimer's, we have somebody who has severe chronic illness, they're old, they leave hospitals, and the hospital works up an entire care plan and hands that to a family caregiver and says, this is what you need to do. Well, and, they can't. And, and, you know, whether they can or can't, whether they can afford it or can't afford it, right. it's here's your care plan. And they the free caregiving services, you know, that's just included. Oh, good. We don't, you know, this is the caregiver is going to do this, 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 and this because that's free for the system. Why is it free for the system? You know, when people are having to quit their jobs, lose $325,000 of income. Over a lifetime. To care yeah. for their loved ones. Um, when the caregivers, you know, they didn't do anything. <laughs> but add to that that we are going to very soon run out of those, quote, free caregivers. Well, that's it. Um, you know, so what do we want? Do we want to create people who live in poverty in their old age because they quit their jobs to take care of their loved ones? Or do we want to support those family members, allow those caregivers to get credits in Social Security, to get income derived from their caregiving duties so that they're not losing all that income and they don't go into retirement with it's really, nothing. It's a really good point because when they're not working, they're not getting Social Security credits even though they are working. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a triple whammy. Quit your job, lose your Social Security benefits, um, lose your income, and it just it multiplies upon itself. Caregivers sacrifice so much, so much. Um, and there, we should be we should be all raising our flags during this election season to say what as we as a nation going to do when this need is so great because so many people even younger have disabilities younger. So we're not talking about seventy and eighty year olds needing care. We're talking about forty five, fifty. The incidence of stroke among people under the age of thirty has doubled. Seriously. In the last five years. Doubled. Uh, due to obesity and smoking. Wow. So if you're obese and you smoke and you're under 30, watch out because you can have a stroke and it's bad. So, you know, devastating effects. It's a bumper sticker. It's a bumper sticker. So, we oh. know, these are, we don't, uh, during this election season, you may be hearing all kinds of crazy stuff about a bunch of issues. And, yes, there are many issues with national security and policy and, and wages. But, you know, when you're looking at work life, and you think how many people working are their work life is impacted and their earnings are impacted and their savings are impacted by caregiving issues huge numbers it's huge and we should all be talking about it so what we need then is caregiver in chief we need a candidate running for a major office who has experience firsthand caregiving but a lot of those folks have so much income and so uh, many benefits that they don't do hands-on caregiving. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, they have these drug czars, you know, for, right. for drug abuse. Where is our caregiving <laughs> czar? Which one of the candidates is going to hire a caregiving czar? Uh, because when you think about lost lives and drug abuse and drug addiction and the crime that goes with it, you know, let's let's put the numbers up for caregiving and that impact um, and that impact on quality of life in people's lives. Uh, I think we need a czar. If you knew anyone at the National Council on Aging, that's something that you all could recommend. I know. They're tired of listening. I think they're already <laughs> tired of listening to me, and I'm just getting ramped oh, up. Oh, wow. Well, as you think about the major issues, and we've got about 30 seconds uh, in this campaign, and Bob uh, uh, talked about quite a few when we had Bob Lancato on, what do you see as the major political issues 
that affects seniors and caregivers? Well, I think the issue of Social Security, while it's not complicated, you have to be listening to what they're saying they're going to do to it, as well as Medicare, um, because the, that's going to impact everyone that's listening to the show. You are a Medicare beneficiary. You are a Social Security beneficiary, as are your loved ones. And we better hear something about Alzheimer's and caregiving. And the Supreme Court, because the next appointment to the Supreme Court uh, down the road, we'll hear cases that affect all of this. All of this. So huge, huge, you know, we just encourage people to get informed uh, so they can make good decisions based on the facts and get out and vote. Carol Zerniel, thank you. Very informative. We're going to have Jamie Heisman join us in a couple of moments for Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Where do you hear us? 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal? To support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we're so pleased that you are with us now for Take 10. Each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs uh, ends with Take 10, where Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on caregiving and addictions, and our co-host Carol Zerniel and me, Ron Aaron, discuss, bat around a topic uh, that we hope is of interest to you, and it's clearly of interest to us. And you've got a pretty good one, Carol. What happens when you lose faith and trust in a professional that you're working with? Well, so, you know, often on this show, we talk about talk to your doctor, talk to the social worker, talk to your, you know, the therapist. administrator, your therapist, whoever. We, talk, we tell you to talk to the professional. Um, but sometimes, you know, the, those in the hospital, the nursing homes, the doctor's offices, wherever, those professionals let us down. And we lose faith and trust in them. So, Jamie, has this ever happened to you? Well, it does. And, and I think we have to really qualify um, professionals we lose trust in because I don't think it's a, it's a monolithic sort of issue concept. Um, when you're dealing, let's say, in this world of psychology and you have a therapeutic relationship with somebody, you're getting to deep-seated issues, they're uncomfortable, uh, you, you're, you're absolutely feeling like your whole life is about to fall apart in that room with the therapist. There's a great shot of, of not wanting to trust your therapist at the time, but your therapist is actually doing um, good work around continuity, and so sometimes you have to trust the process. Now, there's another thing which I think you're asking about more, and I think we should probably, as best we can, focus on, and that's about your provider who may be your primary care physician, who may be your specialty uh, care physician, 
uh, or physicians in general. Maybe that is the best way to approach well, it. Well, or, or also, care? you know, the the nursing home administrator, the assisted living administrator, you know, people that you go to with problems that you are looking for answers. Well, I think that's all good. And again, that somehow excludes a little bit the, the mystical sort of part of psychology because the, the skilled nursing, the assisted living, the doctor, we're talking very much observable, objective behavior that we can look at, we can study, we can intuitively feel, and we can know if we're getting short shrifted, and we can know if somebody cares enough to stay and spend time to bear witness to us. We know if they can pick up the phone and call another doctor to staff the case. These are all observable behavior that we know we're being taken care of. And if that behavior is not occurring, and if we are not front and center, and if it, the provider in front of us is not right there in the space with us where we're at, we know, and then we start losing our trust. Right. And, you know, an example of this might be in the hospital where somebody reads you the chart and tells you one thing, and then the next time they read you the chart, they tell you something completely different and say, oh, well, we must have read you the wrong chart, or, oh, I guess they didn't write that down, or, oh, you know, it just confusion. You never hear the same thing twice. We are in a world that lacks continuity. We are in a new electronic medical record world where, um, obviously, a lot of people are having a difficult time with the changeover. We are still in the world where we're seeing patients at an inordinate amount uh, a clip, I mean, just a bizarre clip, and um, we are dealing with human um, doings somewhat instead of human beings. We're forgetting also that physicians possibly or the providers or the assisted living people also did not sign up necessarily for this as well. So you're saying that many of them are probably just as frustrated as we are. Absolutely. I think there's a huge frustration level in American healthcare today. Um, I don't think it's, you know, any one organization. I don't think it's any one profession. I think that we've had so many changes since 2010 um, on the reimbursement side, on the primary care side, specialist side, on the outcome side. I think that a lot of people who actually studied medicine in their respective schools and absolutely put an unbelievable amount of time, effort, and also financial, if you will, overload, um, who are now getting out of college or did get out of college, were not necessarily bargaining on this. And You've heard me say this too often, is that, you know, expectations are the seeds of resentment. So what if we have hit the wall? What if we have absolutely lost faith with our provider? We, you know, the family doctor, the, the nursing home administrator, whoever it is, we, you know, we can't patch up that relationship. It's going to be a divorce. Um, Can you fire your professional? Well, yes, absolutely you can, Ron. Um, it's not, you know, as maybe as dramatic as when we see, you know, firings happening in, in, as an employer, you can actually say, and also two providers in my world of psychology, sometimes I'm not getting through or a person's not making enough progress, and I would say maybe I'm not the best therapist for you. That doesn't happen often in the medical world, but I do think that you can absolutely move to another provider if these observable behaviors, if these feelings of being discounted and detached, if you don't feel and this is your life, I and mean, this isn't a dress rehearsal, so we don't have many places to go, but if your life is not feeling fulfilled and supported by the provider, and a lot of the things Carol's describing, absolutely, you should go visit another one. But to Carol's point, real quickly, um, I do think you have to do a lot of research into this. Uh, Carol, I know that when I had my medical challenge, of which I still have, um, I went to every user group 
uh, known to mankind across the, the entire world and uh, started asking people questions and seeing who was the most consistent, most caring, most innovative person. Um, I actually did deep research on that. I asked friends. I asked uh, social groups. And so it is incumbent upon us, like any interview, is to find out much, much more about the person we're about to see before we just jump in. If you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and we're talking about when you lose faith and trust in someone who is providing professional services and help. And, Carol, one of the issues, of course, is how do you then replace them? Well, I mean, I, the, you may not have a choice in, in a hospital setting. Sometimes we we don't have a choice um, because we live in a small town. There's X number of doctors. There's only one hospital. It's the only you know it's the only place to go. Um, so sometimes we have to try to work through those issues. But if we do have a choice, I think what Jamie said is very important in terms of you know doing the research. Uh, you know, as much as we can in, in figuring out what we think will be the best fit. But l- just from a from a caregiving standpoint and, and how s- as stressful as it is and all the different appointments and everything that you're juggling, I mean, how important is it to have confidence and faith and trust in the professionals you're dealing with? Oh, my gosh, Carol. I don't think you could uh, have anything else but that because just what you said especially when it comes to caregivers in america that are overwhelmed besieged doing a bunch of things and trying to stay balanced their their own selves biologically psychologically and socially and taking care of others i mean trust this glide path called trust and knowing that we're in, in good hands i can only personalize this for you and tell you that you know going through the most erratic unknown sort of symptoms in the world that that i had no idea about um with anybody else except this extraordinarily powerful man who cared, who's brilliant, who's innovative. If I did not have some feeling of trust, I think I would have lost feelings of hope. And I think that's the, the, the consequence of this. Well, uh, I, that's, that's probably it in a nutshell, you know, that when we, we don't feel supported, you know, the, the one thing that within our Caregiver SOS program, we understand is that the one thing that caregivers don't feel is solid ground under their feet. You know, they want to be able to rely on something because there's so many moving parts in their lives. And so if you as a caregiver do have a choice, if there is another option and then you have lost faith, you know, that's an energy drain. It's kind of like surrounding yourself with positive people. You know that there are people who take away your energy, who drain your energy and you know, you just, it's difficult to be around them. Tough enough to be around them in the workplace. Yeah. And so, you know, if, if the people that are helping you care for your loved one are, are that drain, are a negative force in your life, you know, we need to minimize any negative forces. Got about 30 seconds, oh. Dr. Jamie. And I, I, I want to, if you don't mind uh, taking a look at, we always feel guilty about uh, trying to separate or fire a professional uh, rather than doing what's right for the one being cared for. We do, Ron, and, and just to address that very quickly, there is a codependency about that. Doctors are with, with um, uh, DR in front of their name or degrees behind them. As it, we, we see them in some paternal or, or maternal role or some heroic role, and, and we do feel guilty. And I have to tell you, this is where support groups come in well. This is where you need to get strength and hope. You need to ask questions, and you need to get answers. And so often we can't do it by ourselves initially. It's a long therapeutic process. But with the help of a good support group, you can accomplish a whole lot. Got to stop you right there, flat out of time. Take 10 
on Caregiver SOS On Air. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.